Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Crystal Fall. I'm the editor of the Toolkit. My guest today, director Deborah Granick, talking about her film, Leave No Trace. Uh, this week, we're continuing um, our week of podcasts focused on 2018 films we are desperately hoping don't get lost in the conversation of the best of the year and, and awards. Uh, Leave No Trace is a film about a veteran living off the grid uh, with his teenage daughter. Uh, IndieWire readers, of course, know Deborah from her first uh, feature debut, Winter's Bone. Um, between Winter's Bone and uh, Leave No Trace, there was a wonderful doc that I think I think a lot of our readers have seen called Stray Dogs, um, kind of in between those two. Um, thank you for being here. And they may even know for the film before Winter's Bone, which is Down to the Bone. Shoo, you did that too. I love that movie. Why did I not think of with Vera? Yes, yes. yes. A shot upstate New York yes, with all yes. the, you know, I saw that at the old quad when it was oh, here. Awesome. I don't know, I don't remember what it was called at that point. It was... Uh, yeah, that was a wonderful, wonderful film. That was like one of the best things about uh, drug use I've, 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 um, I've oh, wow. seen. All right. Well, then I don't know why I didn't associate that with you. I don't know who I thought. Okay. Well, either way, um, you know, I'm a New England boy, and uh, there's the, there's an element here. There's two landscapes that always evoke something for me. One is you know anything out in that Rockies with the like the big sky, but then also the no sky uh, Pacific Northwest, which mm. is of course where where you are with this film. I have to imagine there's and there's just something about that that's just so evocative. I have to imagine there's something about because I think you too are a northeastern, mm-hmm. right? Like, I am. There, there, there's some. I have to imagine there's something baked into when you think mm-hmm. of this story that because it is it's such a big storytelling device in this movie. The use of the forest and yeah. being in it, yes, yeah. and and that setting I, in general. Yeah, uh, and I think I, I as a person who likes the woods in the east I I was curious about the woods in the west and I knew that it was a lot taller a lot greener a lot moister you know and so I think there was a big wonderment on my part about what that would be like to film there and I knew it would be photogenic lots of texture I knew the DP would find it very exciting and I think you know that kind of depth is very unusual right that you can have small shrubs and plants in the foreground then you have these juvenile trees in the mid in the midground mm-hmm. and then layers and layers of trees going through light coming in from all different directions being reflected slanted add rain to that which the pacific northwest will give you in abundance mm-hmm. and you've got luminous surfaces you've got reflective surfaces things that lenses love what you know this is this is this is the actual raw ingredients of what the even this late in the game even this 21st century mm-hmm. that's what 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 we ask lenses to do for us to amplify make make bigger, make almost, right, make uh, superpower eyes. We can't see that way. Mm-hmm. We have incredible optics ourselves, but then you add lenses and you're, you're basically just, you're double dipping, right? Mm-hmm. And so the lenses that Michael McDonough, who shot the film, chose for the forest really were a great responsive choice of lenses. He used a different set of lenses for the urban, mm-hmm. he, uh, urban, Scapes, which were harder and cement and gray and not reflective. And then there's an element. I, I was going to jump right into. I, I was. I was going to say this for later, but there's an element here of also almost just like uh, you know how the westerns used to tell their stories with landscape. The relationship of these characters to the landscape changes, and also the way you film it. Right. I mean, I, and it has to. It's so specific, but it's that's part of the planning that goes into to something like this, right? Well, yes, but I you just hit something so intense. Henry David Thoreau, Walden, mm. Midway, I'm going to go back to what you just said about landscapes, but I'm just trying to think about landscape, uh, 
midway through trying to do drafts on this screenplay, my friend takes me back to Walden. We trek around, and I'm thinking a lot about Henry David because I was really moved by one of the forwards to Walden. I mean, it inspired, I gave it a lot to, like, pass that along to Ben as backstory of, like, what what this character was, some of the, some of the older stuff that turned him on still, mm-hmm. you know, f- philosophically. And as 2018 was unfolding, 2017, 2016 even, I was so happy there was a philosopher in our past, in our American past, like Henry David and other transcendentalists. But some of the specs that he threw out, you know, the modest cabin, very little material acquisition, trekking in the woods, the chitter and chatter of the woods, the excitement of the woods, the way that you cannot be lonely in the woods, mm-hmm. even if you're alone. These were, the, he was writing about an eastern wood, you know, an eastern forest where he was standing, you know, just a mere, mere few miles from Boston. But the fact is, uh, yes, I was very, I, I was actually looking back to an earlier reverence in American history to the woods to understand why, why people seek it, why, why, why this person, if he's going to choose a place to live, why he would choose that. And there's a thing here, and I'm specifically thinking of the opening before they go to this to the city the first time. So I think that's you know, roughly the first 20 minutes or so. Um, the amount of detail work that's here, that's in um, this daughter and, and, and father's life. Um, your films are always so ingrained in these details, but you really, in that sense of making this world work for them, not just in the way you photographed it, but also just seeing. Making us, I've camped a couple times in my life, but you know, that sense of they are able to make this terrain work for them and feel that, and also the way you're photographing it, that, that's, that's a very clear grounding, right, in terms of, of how you're going to make us experience this at first, right? Mm. For that, we used a primitive skills and outdoor survival trainer, top of her game, a woman named Nicole Apellian, who is actually kind of legendary in the Pacific Northwest because she survived for a very, very long time in, in such a forest, picked her tools carefully, and then just proceeded to, like, you know, blow people away with her uh, ability to stay out there a long time and be ultra-resourceful. So in she saunters, and Thomas, and, who plays Tom, and Ben were very impressed with her. They She was electric, and she proceeded to pick seven feasible, learnable skills to teach them, things that anybody who was portraying someone living in the woods would have to know, and specific to the Pacific Northwest, like how to light a fire in, in, with, when all the tinder's moist, you know, mm-hmm. it's a different skill set. So uh, those details then ended up on screen, very much so. The use of the knife for the feather sticking, how they light their fire, when they light their fire, the survival shelter itself, the, thing, the very thing that allows them to not be either not perish or, or become further injured by hypothermia, you know, was, was the teaching of Nicole. She told them which, which debris, which boughs, which boughs were mo- most water repellent, how to layer them, how to trap the heat. That was actually a functional, on screen was a functional shelter, one that could save people's lives. And you get that sense yeah. too. I mean, I don't know any of this stuff, you know, but you get that sense that this is real and that they're doing it. And we're not being explained it, just watching them. In, and there's another aspect of it, which is, Ingrained in that is also how they are a work. They are uh, emotionally functioning father daughter in a way that I think, like, if someone gave this backstory of this, I, I think like everybody else in the movie, they'd be like, well, "What's going on here?" But you see their dynamic 
and their love and him being father and her, him, her being a little bit nurturing of him too yeah. in in this kind of ingrained in their lifestyle in the like feathering of the wood and good job and in and, and the way they cook a meal. Yeah, it, we, and so I think one of the adventures of, of the screenplay writing process is just you're not sure what's going to get thrown at you, what you're going to stumble over literally. So I, I think, I believe I stumbled into a production of The Tempest, Prospero and Miranda. Miranda's got these monologues uh, in which she says, oh, you know, Father, I, I sometimes fear I'm a burden to you, you know, and he, and he, and he replies like, you're, you're what anchors me, you know, without, without my responsibilities for sort of raising you, I, I would actually would probably be a lot more confused and wayward, mm-hmm. uh, maybe truly lost. And, and then, you know, they, but they, she has curiosity. He's very, uh, very wary, wary of being crossed, being, um, he's wary of treachery, of, of, of the mal behavior of humans. She's curious about all kinds of humans. So some of their dynamic was, I was like, oh, yeah, of course. If the story isn't Greek, it's Shakespearean, you know, if it's not, you know, if it's, or if it's not prehistory, it's, you know, it's somewhere in there. Yeah. And uh, look, I found out unbelievably the story is retold and, and Ralph breaks the internet. <laughs> Even to the point of the necklaces given. The parting of the analog and the, and the digital. <laughs> I haven't and, seen that one yet. And Ralph is like really distressed about losing the friendship and, and yeah. companionship of the younger, the younger woman. Because there's also an element here of where the story goes of layering in the veteran aspect, him being damaged and that being part of it. And it's important so that in that sense of grounding us in the sense that we are wary of the jogger, we are wary of the loggers and um, and seeing this as a threat to, to their lifestyle. And then, you know, part of the way that you're able to progress and, and, and work and change our point of view is, is layering in this backstory. Not that you're hiding it from us, but it's mm-hmm. like very... One of these things about, I feel like with, I think you self-identify as a social realist in mm-hmm. terms of, is that, yeah, you get these details, but how you layer them and show them is is still the stuff of structure and where the audience yes. is going to be. And it feels to me like that element of being with them and feeling their paranoia of the outside world is so important for where you ultimately want to go with this in in that kind of that sense of once again returning to a veteran character well that took a lot of again in outside influence because i I couldn't imagine what it means what it takes to live undetected Mm -hmm. what what a what a what a complicated prospect especially in a in a a, a world of surveillance in a world of um you know all these ways in which we're identified tracked followed you know Mm -hmm. Um, and even just the idea that he didn't want to be followed or tracked. He didn't want his preferences to be part of any algorithm. You know, that he was, sometimes I think the story is actually like fugitives from the algorithm, mm-hmm. you know, running as fast as, you know, not, mm-hmm. but just trying to get away. What, what, what does it mean to extricate yourself? It's quite hard. So in that way, the, the frequency and ease with which you can sort of be found out, especially if you don't have your own property, mm-hmm. made me realize that you don't have to be too paranoid to be on edge. But it was coupled with the fact that he does experience a form of hypervigilance of, uh, with PTS. Mm-hmm. Hypervigilance is a very, it's a very hard part of PTS to manage because your brain, 
so amazingly and beautifully made an adaptation in combat, right? To, mm. Which is to be able to sense danger always everywhere, be prepared to respond to danger. So, and you come home with a brain that still functions that way. It is perceiving, and, and that's why in some ways it's very touching that Tom has to sometimes decipher for him what is a real threat versus a perceived threat? What is a, a threat of a magnitude of one versus a, a, a five, you know, mm -hmm. five being very bad? Or, um, so I, I did think that that was going to be a very rich part of his PTS to try to explore. And I believe it is one of the uh, facets of PTS that's, that's quite prevalent. Well, can we take a step back here? Because um, obviously you're... I mean, it, it, once someone sees this film, they'll understand how deeply you feel this and ingrain it in. But the, and then, and then, but going back to Stray Dog, which at the time caught it caught me a little off guard. It's like, what's what's that woman who made Winter's Bone gonna do next? And I didn't expect this 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 wonderful story about the, the you know anchored in this world of this 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 guy that's in part of this veteran community. What is that? I mean, clearly this is something that means a great deal to you and is an incredibly rich in character, but how did that start for you in that getting involved in that world and, and meeting so many people in that world? So Stray Dog was a real direct outcrop of that connection, was, an, was right out of Winter's Bone. He was a man I had met in a chance encounter when I was scouting in, in southern Missouri. I was looking for people in the community that might want to be involved, be on screen, be extras, and I was also looking for uh, a kind of patriarch, a patriarch of, the, of a family that could understand this character of Thump Milton, could understand what it means to uh, lay down the rules for a family. He, he, as a biker, he was very involved in protocol, very manly protocols, dress downs, confrontations, how, how do bikers settle things? There's protocols, it's, it's, it's a form of chivalry. It's ancient, you know, it's, it's like knights, you know. A dress down is, I think, what knights did mm -hmm. when they have a discrepancy or something they have to settle when they have beef. So Ron became my, it was sort of like he is, um, he's an expert in testosterone, testosterone and its deployment, mm -hmm. its nuances. All the ands of testosterone that I can never know. I can see popular culture have one version of what it is to be a highly testosteronic being, mm -hmm. but I can't know the part I'm not shown in popular culture. So I could ask straight off, he could tell me all the ands. He could tell me what it's like to make a cake with power tools. You know, he could tell me what it's like to care about very small animals. He could tell me all the ands. And thus he did, and I became very involved. And a lot of ands were his veteran experience. Mm -hmm. Being someone who was an expert marksman and someone who had to wait all year for a proper time to, to cry, which is like the Greeks' catharsis. Mm -hmm. they, they would have to take an annual pilgrimage, a very arduous pilgrimage with other bikers, white-knuckling it across the country to go to a wall in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. where they could have some emotions, where they could run their fingers down the names of their brothers you know, that are engraved in stone and kneel and cry when they needed to, have those emotions, be with each other, try to understand themselves and the part of American history they participated in. But he, he kept going with the ands. And you can come to a session when I talk to my therapist. And by the way, Deborah, I actually like my therapist. He really understands me. Though it took me 45 years to seek help, I finally did, and I was actually positively rewarded. I'm like, Yes, Ron, I would love to come and, and hear that, a bit of that discussion. Mm -hmm. Yes, it would, be, it would mean a lot. 
Uh, it would add to your list of ands. And so I didn't, Ron presented himself as an opportunity to have a dialogue. He said, I'm willing. I couldn't have found that opportunity on my own. It had to be someone offering it as well. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that's very humbling about filmmaking is you're, you are who you are. You are defined. He knew I was a Yankee, mm-hmm. you know? He knew I was from the, he has, he has good regard for the industrial Northeast. He doesn't think we're wimps. You know, he knows it's kind of a, it's a harsh landscape. It's mm-hmm. always been a hard struggle. Um, but he knew that on every level, my experiences are so different, but he was willing to have the conversation. Um, so, yes, I, I, I was the recipient of, of an overture. I didn't just conjure that myself. I'm trying to clarify that. I know yeah. I'm saying it like nine no. different ways. But, <laughs> but it clearly opened up something for yeah. you artistically that, that continued with this, with this film. And, you know, I, I live in New York, and so the, the, the plight of homeless veterans is something when, you know, the minute we walk out of here, we're, we're, we're going to see it. And... Um, you know, I, I was introduced to it in the, in, in, the, in the world through Ron and Stray Dogs, but that idea that uh, what that means in the Pacific Northwest, and because you, what, what's going on with the Ben Foster character, he's part of a community that's kind of, not that everybody's quite in the middle of the woods doing the, the survivalist thing, but they're in these tarps and these tents on the outside. How, what, what opens, you know, I mean, obviously that's part of a, a whole what, what, what opened up that part to you and kind of seeing that? And I guess the real question I had is, is, is becoming, I know there was a book, but was it about doing trips and going out there and spending time and, and, meeting, mm-hmm. and, and meeting people that were in this life? Absolutely. Uh, veterans in Portland started to inform the story hugely. They were willing to meet with us, explain their experiences at the VA, um, explain the journey from putting down the drugs that weren't working, mm-hmm. you know, the prescribed drugs, the big pharma that wasn't working, um, where you do get meaningful help, what it's like to uh, yeah, go through that journey. And um, that was so helpful. The VA itself was very supportive of the project and allowed us to film in, in the Portland VA. Their literature is very helpful. Anecdotally, material that comes from therapy sessions there or from the, the use of the hotline, whatever it may be, ends up being extremely helpful in terms of detail. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a book that was phenomenally helpful, a memoir written by a very beautiful, um, just a very talented journalist who's also a Marine called The Evil Hours. Mm-hmm. Um, his na- author is David J. Morris. That, uh, that book, though it was not set in the Pacific Northwest, had many details that were extremely applicable. Mm-hmm. Ben does his own research. Ben has portrayed combat veterans in the past. He's embedded. He's taken the time to listen, to meet with, to hear, to absorb. Um, And so that was something that he brought into this project as well. He came with this, I I always call it an endowment. You know, he had this, he had put a lot of effort into this particular niche of understanding. Mm -hmm. One thing that's fascinating about it is... um, and I'm wondering if you could talk about this. You know, obviously they go to the city and, and, and their cover is blown. I hope at this point the movie's been out for a while, so I hope we can, we can say that. But structuring this and the story with the daughter so that we can get in, you know, this is not, uh, this is an observational film. This isn't something where there are going to be long dialogues and thank God or explain it to us. But yet to access and to slowly reveal what's going on with the Ben Foster character in here. I wonder if you could talk about that 
because part of it is, 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 I think, once again, coming back to this landscape and putting them up against different things. And so certain things feel intensely wrong in making us understand that. But then I think then also brings in this point of view of the daughter who's exposed to things that feel more natural. And so the, I mean, the way it all works is perfect and smooth, but I imagine there's like a lot of decisions there and, and how you're going to make us experience this and feel this you know, without telling us. Well, that is definitely part of uh, the social realism, which is that you try to show a lot, a lot of process, a lot of detail. So, um, you know, and with social realism, there's not a lot of backstory often that is that is delivered in exposition. Mm. So I think you're at, you're just kind of referencing both ideas. That the idea that um, you would learn more from you're you're responsible as a viewer for putting a lot of lists together in your mind through observation that you're also performing this all along you're looking at details of how they're dressed what 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 they're doing on screen and that's how you're accumulating in aggregate your impression of them uh-huh. of but there is a lot that you that you have to ask yourself it's true there's there's a lot of moments in this in, in that kind of filmmaking, where you're like, I'm, I'm wondering how she's gonna, where she's gonna go on that one decision, you know? Mm-hmm. You're, and I always think that's a good thing because I love that in my colleagues' films. Or I ask myself, you know, what would I do? What would I do? What would I do? You know? Um, so I don't know if I got, I don't know if I got well, to what you were yeah, asking. Yeah, let's, but, let's give it. A, I, I wonder yeah. because you've talked a little bit before about why it takes you so long to, 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 to do these projects and they're well worth it. So that's, but the, let's just use an example of the Christmas trees, you know, mm. which becomes mm. his job, right? Now that is a perfect detail for this character in that sense that, you know, them chopping down these Christmas trees and helicoptering them in and shipping them off to Los Angeles. One, quickly, in the way also you're filming it, like, we can see why that's not, <laughs> that's not going to jive. But I mean, and so that sounds obvious in retrospect, but I imagine the list of things that you had to think about of like what he could be doing or the jobs that he would be doing that would visually mm-hmm. register that way. I'm, my assumption has always been that that, First off, going out there, spending time figuring out what these people are doing, but then find the right one that you're not going to have to tell the audience. It's just going to feel that way. Well, and you're right. It's, it's also born out of research. So the fact is, when you get to this extremely fertile and uh, rich area surrounding Portland, you can't help but notice that the Christmas tree industry is huge. It is a 35 million tree industry, you know, it, it 30, mm-hmm. and it services a you know, vast part of the country. So it was dramatic, but it was really vivid in the landscape. And it is, it was filled, the the rows of soldiers, the the rows of, um, and then the way that uh, the harvesting is done does have a very fierce quality. It is very, it, it, very in contrast to what you're doing when you're what you're grounding us in the first ten minutes, right? Where they're yes. one with nature and they're making nature work for themselves in a way that feels very organic, for lack of a better word. Whereas this just feels like like stripping and feels like everything that is against like the rhythms that are keeping this guy in balance. Absolutely, that was very front and center in the experience of being amidst harvesting and witnessing it. And yet, of course, also being exposed to the fact that 
Um, the farmers themselves are, uh, in many cases, just really employing, you know, providing really important employment, and they've got almost a spiritual quality to them in terms of their care and precision and high standards and the desire to make it work and make good, make a living, you know. So there was a lot of ands there too. You know, that the foreman of that farm really thought he he did have a skill. He has a huge skill set. He really wanted to impart it to the Ben character, you know, to to Tom's father and. Um, so even there, I wanted to make sure that I didn't erase the ands. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no ogre. There's a set of circumstances, and it's it's for us to to try to um, stretch and see. You know, okay, we we get it that it's not a good match, and yet for someone else it might be a good match. So I didn't want to put too. I didn't want to squash it with judgment. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to put it there for the, some of the paradoxes that we face together. Really, we, you know, a lot of us face them together. You know, and that's what's fascinating about um, about this movie is, is that there, you know, for example, uh, the social services, the two, the, two, the, two, the people that are representing that part of it, they're representing, you know, when they're taken from the woods and they're separated, you know, instinctively we're well, you were very smart. You put us with the teenager and that feeling of separation and feeling how much that that is a violation but you know at the end the face that you put on that is people that are really they have rules and they have regulations but they're making a real effort to help these people adjust but there's an element there of um, one feels like that lack of an answer though we have a problem we have we have we have a we all have a problem but there isn't there isn't a solution. It seems to be something that is an endless fascination for you as a filmmaker. I don't know if I'm wrong about that. Maybe you do have a clear point. No. Oh gosh. I mean, you know, I, um, <laughs> you know, it's 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 almost unfortunate to make films about things without clear cut answers because then they're not they're immediately not commercial. Because <laughs> you know, the more commercial stories really like things clear cut. The violence that happened to the Ben Foster character would make a more sellable movie than the trauma that he's dealing with afterwards. Yes, I, I think so, usually. Yeah. Um, uh, but I think, um, like in the case of, I think maybe you're, you're talking about like how things become more reductive or black and white so that uh, it might be more advantageous to a story to have like the social workers be the villains, mm -hmm. to be more the man, more the people that do something um, that looks uh, not reprehensible, but I want to say, you know, injurious or, or unkind. I think at this point and in, the, in the world, in the world of this kind of independent film, I think it would probably be a satirical thing. Oh yeah, or satirical. You're, you're know, right. You're right. Or like the, right. Like kind of liberals making fun of liberals. Kind yeah. Of the institution aspect. That that that, 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 that <laughs> your film played at Sundance. I feel like that's that's, that's the version that I would have seen. That mm. you know, the kind of mocking of the institution to a degree. I'm sorry. No, no, and I think you're right on that. And I was thinking that what, what happens is if you do the research with real social workers, you're going to hear n new a lot of nuance, and therefore then it becomes harder and harder to do that more reductive sati satirical thing. It, you know, I think the script surely started with a more satirical depiction. I'm sh I'm sure of it. Mm -hmm. You know, but their influence. I think then had to add the layer of like, well, you know what? Actually, we do this work because we're pretty sincere, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, social work social work gets botched, but we don't. We sure as hell don't go into it like that. You know, we go in 
we go in hoping we can make a positive difference. The casting is really important for this, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. obviously you have the two wonderful leads and we can talk about that, but I'm talking about this kind of world, populating it with people. Um, I know there's a mix of probably some real casting and some um, and some locals, but there, there's, an, there's a textural feeling of these people being of that area or being believable is a huge part, isn't it, to, to making that feel legit? I do. I'd love to incorporate wherever we're filming. I love to make sure there's a lot of uh, inflection and influence by local people, mm -hmm. and especially experts in their field. So if someone do, does real-life work that is being represented in the film, I would love it if they would, if they're, if, they're cool, if they're okay with that, if they can, if they feel comfortable being in front of a camera, I would love them to bring that expertise into the film. Some things I try to replicate with actors, and a couple times I've not been able to, and then I've had to go back to the source, the life model. You know, people have different names for all, all these different gradations of performer, but, um, and I'll say, I tried my best. I tried to cast someone who I thought could convey some of the things you've been communicating, and I couldn't do it do you think it's possible, could, could, would you consider being in, representing yourself, you know? Mm. <laughs> and, some, and some people will say yes, and, uh, and when that can happen, I, I really enjoy it. And I, I love trained actors. Mm -hmm. I love it when someone who's been very, who has a lot of experience is willing to do that, is willing to be in a scene with someone who might be a real cop, might be a real lawyer, might be a real beekeeper, might be a real army recruiter. Um, they go back to the woods. Could you, it's, a, it's an incredibly film sequence um, where you're turning this landscape on, on them. Now, part of it is it's cold, it's dark, it's, you know, but there's an element there of, um, it's an incredible piece of filmmaking of feeling in almost kind of repeating patterns, but in a different setting where mm -hmm. there's an unfamiliarity to it. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the approach to, to filming that, because it, you have to get there dramatically very quickly and you do it, you do it with the camera. Make um, ha what happens like how how to make wi different forests look different. Yeah, yeah but there's yeah. also there's an element it's like all that stuff that you set up in the beginning. Mm -hmm. You turn it on them, and it's incredibly effective. And um, that that you know taking away his agency of his ability to to shape this mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. to keep his daughter and himself safe. So that's yeah that was a very um, kind of moving part of the story that under duress when he lost his footing, so to speak, so when he's removed from the life that he can operate very well, he becomes almost, there's almost a domino effect where his prowess to function well in the woods starts to decrease. He makes a series of very bad decisions and is not prepared in the way he would want to be, in the way that he'd want to be, um, I, I don't want to say gallant in front of his daughter, but super capable. Mm -hmm. None of that ends up materializing, or he, or he's not made it happen. And instead, it's a, it's the opposite spiral. Instead of spiraling into what we think, wow, what, what, a, what a, what a pretty functional life they've got. You know, they've worked out a lot of systems. That that's that that system that seems to be working, literally starts to unravel. Mm -hmm. And we, it was a strange wonderful fluke that we got a real stormy condition. I was about to ask you know, about that. Uh, mm. It wasn't treacherous, treacherous, but it was convincing that to us as a crew <laughs> that it the skies had gotten dark <laughs> yeah. and that, 
you know, and that the wind had struck up and that it was really raining. It began, it be, there was a kind of sleet, which was so perfect, you know, that it was like this, it had a great sound to it. So those things started to, in a primal way, say this is no longer an emerald green, mossy, easy to, easy going paradise forest. This is now when nature is bigger than us. Mm-hmm. A widow's, a widow maker is a branch that gets heavy merely because the moss gets so saturated that the weight of the branch just snaps. No one's being, no one's chasing them. We are now humble, sapien sapien. We're mammals in a big forest, vulnerable as all get out. And so I, you're right. In forest A, they're functioning in a way that makes it seem like they are a kind of mammal that can always work within the forest. In forest B, they look like a kind of mammal that is ultra vulnerable. From a practically, we've talked about the weather and how it's played to your advantage and the, and the, the wet of it being so photogenic and then it seems as if you got some luck here with, with Inclemency. Inclemency. How, how, in general, though, there's also this element of that things that you can't control. And I, I was thinking about, you know, how much of this is when you're filming, reacting, okay, we're going to have this kind of day, so let's go in this type of direction. Um, how much of it is limiting? You know, part of this looks like it's deep in the woods, but, you know, having shot something in the woods myself, it's like you kind of need to find that part that looks like the interior, but that isn't that far deep because you can't, the company move of an hour in. Yeah. And so I imagine there's like, there's some gifts here, but I have to imagine, and then there's also the sound, like getting clean dialogue tracks. So you, I imagine you kind of want to build the sound of the forest, not not have it done. So I, I, I understand there's some gifts here, but I also have to imagine there's a lot of planning and a lot of logistics that are involved with with using nature in this way yes absolutely and for the first um for the first forest the benevolent or the easygoing forest um we did have we had it was a county park which had a parking lot so the vehicles could be in the and then our transport in was really shallow you're absolutely correct it would have been hellacious if it was much deeper in um and in the second forest that the more sort of intimidating one mm-hmm by virtue of what happens there. Uh, that was actually a very, that was a large haul in. And uh, we tried to keep it really, uh, I want to say low impact. We were using know, gators to get it, you know, get gear in and uh, um, grip and electric. And that team, they were, they were really, they were resourceful. Mm-hmm. You know, there was, there was the use, they were all adept at being able to use like a kind of more ATV approach, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, we did go deeper in to, be, to enable the atmosphere to really look like that, mm-hmm. for us to be in places where there were no paths, for example. Um, and that wasn't actually, that was more of a tree farm forest reserve. It wasn't, um, it wasn't laid out as the first place was, which was a park with, that had paths and, and mulch, mm-hmm. signage, you know. This was more actually anarchic and I wanna say a little wilder. Mm-hmm. But you're right. In, unless you're doing something along the lines of, you know, a vintage Herzog film, or I guess if you have unlimited funds, you can perform a remnant, rem, revenant situation. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you can be in very far-flung places. The if your budget can withstand that. But you're correct. On an ordinary, low-budget film, logistics matter a great deal, and we had a 
we had to acknowledge that at all times and, and accommodate that. Did weather work against you as well as it worked for you, or did, is that is there? I mean, this I can say. Yeah, one time the sun came out when it was really bad for us <laughs> to have sun, and we and we and we weren't going to be using like you know the biggest silks ever to block right. the sun. We had to just deal with the vagaries. I, I wanted to believe that if it's in the Pacific Northwest, people know the sun bursts through the clouds at times. The sun. And there's like part of the movie. I watched it again this morning. There's a part of the movie where you do use sun very beautifully. Like it's a limited. It's like this little window where we do get some little patches, right? Yeah, right. absolutely. And those. So, but th th of course, there was but a you moment. You can't have that somewhere else. You can't. Right. Uh, and yeah. there and there was a moment when it came in a really, really inappropriate time. I mean, horribly inappropriate. Like literally, like, you know the kind that is no, no fun for any filmmaker anywhere, anytime, which is singles A are done with no sun, and how are you going to match it to, to like, beaming sun on, on, your, on, your, on your verse? Mm -hmm. So that's always just, that's just one of those things where you're just like, ah, Murphy's Law, the sun just came out in the middle of the scene. Not good. <laughs> the, other, the other location that really spoke to me, and part of it is also the people that you put in there, but is this this final, I don't know what to call it, a community, a, a, they're living in trailers, but um, there's an element here of, and by the way, I guess we're, we're 35 minutes in, if you're still with this, um, I want to talk a little bit about the end so you can duck out, go see the movie, but if, if you have seen it, stay with. There's, there's an element of you found this place um, that instinctively after um, spending so much time with this this these two, it feels you instantly as soon as you meet what's that actress's name? Dale Dickey. Dale Dickey. As soon as you meet her and she puts them in, you're like, oh, this is a balance. This, this, this is a balance um, that has some of the the ruggedness of of Pacific Western uh, forest living, but it has it's guitar and bonfires at night, and and there's veterans that understand each other and. And and one just and, and she's with bees like there's there's something about this place and, and and it's at that point that of course it's such an, it's so perfect because we come to a head of where the Ben's character actually is and like he can't he, he can't even in that community but I, I I'm wondering though in terms of that story does a community like that is that a is that a community like that exist and i have to imagine that is one of those like if it does it's like a eureka moment of like this is this is where i'm going to land them and you can see where that's going to cleave these two well stray dogs community had been a big inspiration and i kept saying can i find something like stray dogs park where i i remember one time talking to stray dog on the phone when i was writing this Leave No Trace screenplay, and I just said, you know, I was just talk, uh, talking to a scenario, you know, because we had seen um, the collaborators that I made Straight Dog with, we, you know, we had seen with our own eyes what, what it was like for a newcomer to come, you know. Uh, and he's so, just for the readers, he, Straight Dog, is, 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 is this wonderful, caring kind of center of, this, of a community like the one that Ben Foster's character clearly needs. I just wanted to give that reference point, yeah. which is that that's a huge part of Deborah's documentary. Well, just the idea that he was someone who definitely could handle the concept of live and let live. And mm -hmm. when I saw it, when the scout, who was wonderful for this film, when Roger brought us to this um, community, Squaw, the Squaw, Squaw Village, um, I, I loved the idea that people were living in sort of original tiny houses, one-room cabins or RVs that they had um, adorned them and made made the place to be like attractive, you know, 
I want to almost say it looked like to me like a gnome village. I kind of thought it had an enchanted quality to it, quite frankly. But I realized that people were, uh, if you want to say bohemian or, or a bit counterculture, or living against the grain a little bit. Um, they had decided they, they sought each other out, you know, and I, I, I did think of it as a place of, of benevolence, of tolerance, a zone of tolerance, if you will, and I thought that there were going to be some adults that Tom would recognize. These people don't need to know a whole lot about why I'm living the way I am or my dad, you know. They got it. They, 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 either, they either understand or they just permit, they permit the idea of diversity and tolerance. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought it kind of split the difference between, and, and the fact that it was ensconced in a grove. You know, outside that little enclave is a huge clear cut. Oh, really? Yeah, to the uh-huh. left is Weyerhaeuser and to the right is like Georgia Pacific, but the fact is... You, you smartly didn't put that in camera. <laughs> well, you actually can... You, you, you almost see it a little you bit can. Okay. Uh, when, when Ben is leaving. Oh, okay. When, when Tom... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. You can when see you, the, the, you the see hills being... A little, there, there's, like, there's, there's a patchwork of, yeah. of, like, you know, in the distance, a lot of the forest is cut, but it was actually even more dramatic up close. That, that kind of distilled it and made it seem still kind of green, but when you actually were on the ground, you could see it was stumps. Um... So, yeah, I, I, that community struck me visually as a place of that I thought I could imagine that, A, she'd respond to some of the adults there. Mm-hmm. And uh, that there, there was something in that community that, that where people craved to extricate them a little bit themselves from the hurly-burly mm-hmm. and were possibly even reducing the amount of hyper-connectivity to the digital grid that they were, you know, experiencing day to day. Yeah, you know, they have they have devices, I'm sure, but uh, that wasn't it was like not it was not was that was not a policy. Of the community you couldn't it, everyone had a phone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just meant it didn't seem it seemed like that they also wanted to spend some time around a campfire. I don't I don't mean to minimize the casting of um, Ben Foster. He's wonderful in this movie, um, it, but one could imagine being in your seat and talking to Ben and watching his performances that he's he's going to be do he, he could you know I, I've never met him but I've seen his work I, I one can imagine you're sitting there going okay he can he can play this guy um and I say that how do you know that for you know this one thing that we haven't talked about is, is that essentially what we're your movie's not a point of view movie, but essentially we are starting to adapt Tom's point of view and being able to see things as her, as this is opening up for her. It's, mm-hmm. She's cleaving from her father's kind of paranoia of this, the rest of the world and, and being exposed to things. And to have um, a, a young actress embody and be able to reflect those things uh, with a soulfulness like this character does, I mean, she's obviously a very talented actress, but I mean, how do you know that? How do you see that? I mean, everybody knows, of course, it's going to make the, they wants me to ask about Jennifer Lawrence in the same, because in the same way you found a young woman who could do that in Winter's Bone, but, but in general, let's talk about Thomason. How do you see that? How do you know that? Is it just, is it, is it the person themselves? Is it? Oh, most definitely, it's the person themselves. Yes. I mean, the yeah. human instead of the, you know, like in that sense of connecting with them as a human, or uh, uh, versus yeah, I, the pure performance. Oh, d- yeah. The conversations 
that go before casting, I think, are the ones that end up um, suggesting to me or convincing me whether there's room for really good collaboration. And Thomason was wonderful. We couldn't meet in person for a long time because she's out of New Zealand. She's, yeah, okay. you know, different so is hemisphere. This audition, is this audition tapes? She sent. She sent. She sent audition. Like self tapes on audition. Okay, so that fascinates me. How I've seen how do you, how do you even in the tape? Because you're saying you you were kept. You're, I watched the tape and then and then we luckily we could you know we could Skype one another and so yeah. we could talk at length um, about the story, about the script, about her ideas, about um, details that she responded to, details that puzzled her. So we were able to have an in depth conversation, and we we're even able to suggest a couple more scenes that where she could play around with them, you know, and um, so she self taped even a, a, a couple additional beats that were wonderful. So that dialogue is what allowed me in answer to your query, you know, like that's the the quality of that conversation is what let me know that I could have more of that. Mm-hmm. I you know, Tom could be in this film and on the weekends or during rehearsals we could talk this way. And that would be wonderful because together we would be shaping she'd be shaping a character. I'd be adding my bits of, of mm-hmm interest or insight she'd be adding hers and I, I would love that I, you know and so was there something about her tape though I, I understand I hear what you said I don't want to under, but is there's also something about what was in her tape was there a quality was there something that you saw that kind of like grabbed you right that made you want to have these conversations oh, I, without a doubt it might be hard to say you know I know, mm-hmm. I know actors they um some have mentioned like you know what is your you know different questions about technique and you know and 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 then they feel like oh gosh sometimes th- people think they're they're just trying to you know what's it called um, make it seem so elusive or ununderstandable but the fact is it's hard to put words when you respond to someone's audition it's hard to put words to it mm-hmm. um, I thought that she had the ability to use her imagination to wonder who this girl was. To wonder about uh, being a contemporary teenager without it, without social media, mm-hmm. I felt that she had conjured that. There's an innocence without an without a simp- There's there's a depth. To, I think the thing that I was thinking about when I watched it again this morning was there's a depth to her. There's an intelligence to her um, in the midst of her lack of exposure to this world and so that those moments where she is exposed to things um, to see both of that to see to, to kind of embody something about that because that there is the element of being naive or not knowing these right, things but right. then there is that yeah. element of like that soulfulness of like how one reacts to something for the first time or to see something and it, it, it's there's something so honest but also intelligent about it uh, but with very little you know not yeah. yeah you, that's the other thing is, is your movies don't call for for big acting in a right. good way. I am definitely minimalist, you yeah. know, there's no doubt. And uh, I know there's been discussions sometimes like, oh, God, you know, you can get so minimalist that, you know, you can't feel the pulse, you know, what's there? But uh, that's where we have to really open up and say, like, there's got to be room on the spectrum. There can be this. There can be plenty of films with big acting. Would we want every film to have big acting? <laughs> you know, no, I mean, no. do we want every film to have, you know, copious tears? And is that the hallmark? You know, sometimes we've used that as the money shot, right? Mm-hmm. The ejaculation from the eyes, lacrimation, mm-hmm. <laughs> is somehow like you did it. Mm-hmm. You achieved that. You know, 
Well, yeah. gosh, that's, 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 you wouldn't want that in every film. Mm -hmm. So somebody's got to take the minimalist stance. So me and a bunch of others in the indie world, we swing towards minimalism. You know? <laughs> um, talking about how long it takes you to do one of these projects, you know, obviously there was Stray Dog um, between this and Winter's Bone. Is there other projects that you go down this road you know, we've, we've talked a lot about your process of developing this, and we haven't even talked about the fact that there was a book that was inspiration, but um, are there other projects that you also go down this road with and, you know, they don't come to, you talk about all the wonderful ways this one's come together, but you, you aren't able to make them click, or, or maybe you're still, they're still brewing, is, or, or is, it, is it, have you had a one project focus in that sense of doing your next scripted thing? Oh no, I mean, there's never one project and it pains me. Like I actually was so disheartened today because yesterday I typed an email to a colleague and I said, you know, before this is gone, we should do a film about it. And she's like, oh, I've been thinking the same thing. But I was like, oh my God, I don't even, I can't start another project right now. I've got two undone ones, you know, what, what am I talking about? But in terms of, yes, I read some scripts that don't come to fruition. I write some scripts that don't come to fruition. I work with a writing partner, Anne Roslini, and um, we were handed a very interesting project years ago, um, right before Leave No Trace started to take over as a full-time narrative. Mm -hmm. And it was about uh, the cycle of coming, you know, doing your time, coming out of, a, uh, out of incarceration and then trying to um, get a straight job, having a lot of things, a lot of doors close, a lot of uh, scarlet letter syndrome of, of, of having society claim they want you to be able to re-enter but not really making a way for that to happen. Mm -hmm. And the ending was it, was, it was one ending written by a particular screenwriter and, and we couldn't make it work. Mm -hmm. And in the end, I was like, I don't want to write, I don't want to be involved in a script where the person goes back inside. I wanna, I'm, I'm curious, I started doing the research, I was like, I'm curious about the people who are talking about they got out and they stayed out. Mm -hmm. I wanna hear about re-entry, not recidivism. Mm -hmm. not, I'm not trying to ignore recidivism, but I'm just saying. And so then we said, okay, we better, let's continue with, with the documentary research. Mm -hmm. That's where we're hearing the more nuanced part of this story. To make a parallel, with Leave No Trace, that element of finding that community yes. that's going to allow yeah. to be that setting for for this kind of natural cleaving of, 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 of the family, right? It, it, that's just one yes, example. Yes, it is, it is. And so, yeah, so this was an example of, of a narrative script mm -hmm. in which we couldn't bring, it, bring the script to a place that we thought was satisfying and it was better served by documentary, by the men themselves mm -hmm. who had incarceration experience being willing to talk about the arduous and relentless task of trying to push back into society when most of those doors are actually really quite closed. And so this is a document, I'm sorry, I yeah, this yes. is a documentary yes. that you're in the it process. Is a, we've been filming it for three years. Okay, are you? Are you <laughs> we are editing. You are editing. Yes, we are editing and okay. um, I'm hanky because, uh, because it's hard to put together. It's longitudinal. Yeah. The editor, our beloved colleague Tori Stewart is got a beast of a job ahead of her <laughs> because yeah. of the it's a script, myriad. It's script writing. It's script writing. Yes, it is. It is absolutely script writing. And yet uh, the characters, it's an ensemble piece in that sense, mm -hmm. you know. Um, 
and it's over time with a lot of vagaries of of, of destiny. Mm -hmm. So it's it's more like it's more like a Dickens novel, if you will. Mm-hmm. No easy thing. <laughs> um, and what was the second one? You said you had two. Pri- what was it? Yes, yes. We have a narrative feature that is actually coming off of documentary material, which is coming off of Barbara Ehrenreich's book Nickel and Dime. Oh sure, yeah, yeah. Sociological classic mm-hmm. that um, basically, I would say tragically is more relevant than every year mm-hmm. the uh her chronicling of of the, the ever tightening screw she, she, yeah she, she entered she went and entered if i remember correctly she she went and like did waitressing jobs and, and and did minimal minimal salary jobs right she did minimum wage jobs in a variety of industry retail industries and and other places uh i think you know different states mm-hmm. and she attempted to live within the means of those salaries and chronicled all the ways in which it was impossible. It didn't matter if she was down to a quarter meal a day. It didn't matter if she was living out of her car. You know, none of it added up to survival. And she decided, you know, she's a, she's a scribe in, who will take these notes in service to trying to document working class experience mm-hmm. and cares about it deeply. But the it, it is ripe for an adaptation and the in the sense that you're not going to do is the main character going to be Barbara no 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 she's you're taking her experiences and and, and yes yes we are depicting the characters that she described and and the places and the circumstances and the struggles and and some of the humor that she encountered and the and the the moxie and you know all that she's got a wit yeah she's got a wit (laughs) she's definitely got a wit and she also appreciates uh the survival humor of other of other people that she meets along the path. So this is one, and this is that, that must be saying because the raw material is there too. So in the, in the yes. starting point, right? Yeah. And so that's something you're writing now. Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Well, this is wonderful. Uh, this is a really really fantastic film. Uh, it, it, it's uh, one of those ones where uh, you know I was really pleasantly surprised, and I honestly did not know this. I mean, I knew it had been well received. I, I saw it back at Sundance. But I, I, I googled it. Uh, people saw this movie. I, I didn't. I apologize for not knowing that. But it came up with seven point two million dollars, which I know is not. But I was like, that's like you know, someone who covers a lot of these films. That's a for this type of film. People saw this, I which know. is really nice. Bleeker did a beautiful job getting it out into the world, and 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 they really wanted a service. They, they they are dedicated to the art house and the smart house. Mm-hmm. They know them. Um, they, you know, on a really great basis, and they knew how to get it out, and they really didn't privilege just L.A. and New York. They did that democratic thing, that good thing, that thing that can help massage and bust down some red and blue stuff, which mm-hmm. is to place it in smaller towns, smaller villages, mm-hmm. not just try for New York and L.A., get it really around and have it travel, and, and I love the way that they unfolded it, and I thought they... Um, I think they care about their theater owners. I think they care about the legacy and the culture of art house surviving. So I, I want to give them a lot of props. Because there's an element there. I'm trying to remember the documentary. Um, there's an element here of the, the, these people's desire for freedom and search of freedom and feeling um, on the outside. That, for me, is something that, yeah, I can't remember. The, it was the one about the, someone that was embedded with the, um, the Oregon, the refuge. Do you know what I'm talking about? The... Um, 
the oh, militia. The, oh, they were um, uh, people that did reenactments. No, no, no the, the the thing, the thing in Oregon with the national park where the people were. Oh, okay. You, you know, and someone was betting. And, and yes. so, but what I, but but what one got out of that was beyond the the nuts was this idea of how these ranchers felt, just. In that sense of something that I don't connect with, I don't connect with a lot of the uh, the Trumpist outrage. But one, I, I started to understand this element of um, how these ranchers really were pissed off at the federal government and really felt like a violation of their ways. And and I think in the relationship to your film of like that feeling of like my freedom is encroached upon that way that the Ben Foster character does. And it was this, it, it becomes that I think there is something about wanting to not look at it blue and red, but to understand that what that actually means, why they feel like their freedom is encroached upon, why they feel like they've been pushed to that outside and in that landscape that's so non-urban. There is an element that I, in, the, in, in thinking about how Bleecker has put this out there that you know, there is a market for something for these types of stories in particular yeah. right now. Although yeah. my guess is this started well before Trump. <laughs> well, it was, it was, but it was, but it, but it is, it is a portrait to some extent of of American decency, mm -hmm. right? And what was poignant to the point of heartbreak this year was to see how novel decency seemed. Mm. You know, here I am, hear, hearing people say, "Oh, but many people are so nice in this film." You know, I'm like, we used to call it just basic decency. Yeah. So our, our perception of what, how we treat each other has really shifted a lot. What we expect from each other has really shifted. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's, not, it's not all just the administration that we have right now, but it's also a very serious byproduct that we're just beginning to understand of anti-social media. You know, we call it social media, but some of the theorists that have really impressed me understand that it's anti-social media. <laughs> And, you know, so, so just that we don't expect that people sometimes um, actually lend a hand when they can, yeah. you know. Well, thank you, Deborah. Thank you for coming in and making, uh, having the time. And we, we look forward to, to these new projects. Thank you so much. Thank you.